Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. Normally, this is the part where you would hear Ben say, and I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller. Except today, Ben is not here. And I have sitting in the studio across from me a new member of the Simplify and Blinkist family, Terrence Mickey. Terrence has come to us all the way from the Lower East Side in New York City to help us out at Blinkist and to do just a number of amazing things. Terrence, why don't you tell people what you're up to here and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ben. Sorry. Oh, shit. <laughs> Already off on the wrong foot. I'm a writer, podcaster, filmmaker, and I will be doing new audio experiments here at Blinkist. Hooray! Yeah, Terrence has already brought a lot of a lot of experimentation and wonder to our lives and also really improved my reading list. So today, this episode focuses on Guy Winch, who is, among other things, a psychologist and a writer. Uh, he also has some TED Talks out there that you're going to want to go watch after this, I'm sure. Definitely. Uh, they're really great. He works on emotional first aid. So basically really practical ways to to deal with the gooey stuff of being human um, and not just deal with them, to really honor them. He has a tough road ahead of him in kind of equating emotional pain with physical pain. Most people will acknowledge physical pain. Emotional pain we like to hide. And mm-hmm. kind of his discovery that patients were feeling embarrassed about losing a pet or a partner, he kind of validates their experience. Yeah. And that's kind of the, for me, the beauty of his work. We really just don't honor emotional pain the way that we should. And Guy Winch is here to to help us all with that. He's incredibly empathetic, as you might realize, but don't expect that this interview was all fluff and snuggles. Uh, he is True. also incredibly practical and will, you know, tell it to you like it is. Guy Winch designed a three-step ritual for getting over a heartbreak uh, that is really something that I think all of us could use at one point or another. That you expertly teased out of him in the interview that hopefully will be in his next book. Indeed. Yeah. So should we get right to it? Definitely. Heartbreak hygiene with Guy Winch. And stick around because after the interview, Terrence and I will be back to construct a book list for you of further reading that has to do with this topic and probably other things too. So see you then. Cool. See you on the other side. Bye. Bye. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for being with me today. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm uh, Guy Winch. I'm a psychologist. I'm based in New York City. And thank you so very much for having me on the show. I'm really, really excited about it. You have recently written a book called How to Fix a Broken Heart. And um, I've never seen I've never seen anything quite like it before. We don't have manuals for that kind of thing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book or why you're interested in it? Yeah, I'm a psychologist, and so I have a private practice. And one of the things you see in private practice is people get heartbroken for all kinds of reasons. And as a psychologist, I, my experience was seeing people really suffer from heartbreak and really make pretty much every mistake in the book, have no idea what steps they need to take to heal, how to evaluate different things. You know, thinking in, in those days about, uh, boy, I wish there was some more information out there for people so they could do this better and have a little bit less uh, pain and distress. And so that's how that came about, really. So 
Guy, what is what does heartbreak look like actually in a severely heartbroken individual? What are the how does that manifest? So for those for the lucky few who have not been through it, <laughs> and I'm hoping some of you have not been through it, um, it is this incredibly sharp um, pain, this feeling that your world has just come to an end, that everything around you is crumbling. Your body literally goes into some kind of emotional shock where you feel this, these feelings of unreality, that you know everything feels surreal, that the world is going on around you, but your world has stopped, your world has crashed, and yet everyone around you seems normal when you are completely devastated. It's the only thing you can think about. You obsess about it. You go through every moment of the breakup. You try and understand it. You think about the person. You try and undo it. And this is all true of, of regular severe griefing also. We, we try and undo it in our minds. But, but what if that call hadn't happened? What if I had just said something different? What if I had just woken up and it was a regular day and not this day? And it's literally something that's difficult to wrap our head around. And so it's completely centralizing. People, even if they try and get themselves up and go through work, they are distracted. They are not themselves. They are completely preoccupied. Um, and that can go on for a very long time. Yeah. And you specifically in this book focus on on two kinds of heartbreak that are less visible than other kinds. We We have specific rituals and specific time off allotments for the heartbreak of losing a loved one uh, when they pass away. But we don't have specific protocols for romantic heartbreak or the heartbreak of losing a, a beloved pet. And that's what you chose to focus on here. How much of, of the problems or the, the troubles that you see in your practice come down to these kinds of quote unquote trivial loss? Well, in fact, what, what unified those two things for me was those were the only two times that people were in real grief, like really feeling very, uh, you know, feeling a loss, feeling absolutely uh, sharp grief, that they came in and apologized, oh, this is silly, but, or I feel foolish, but. In other words, when somebody lost a relative, when somebody lost a dear friend, no one came in and saying, oh, this is silly, but my best friend died and I'm a wreck. But if it was their pet, or if they were adults, and this were not a marriage, but a uh, just a relationship, and it was a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a significant other of sorts, they would feel in some way weird or foolish about feeling so bad about it. And, and so that's what alerted me, like, wow, it's not just that we don't know how to heal these things. We have the added burden of feeling bad about ourselves for even having the feelings we're having. Actually, what I think is really interesting is that you frame this as grief. Heartbreak is a kind of grief, and we don't really give it that that credence. Exactly. And you know what? Both of those things, pet loss and romantic heartbreak, they share all the hallmarks of traditional grief and loss. They have all the physiological uh, responses. And by the way, of course, not for all people, uh, but not for all people. You know, some people get through a loss of a first degree relative rather well. But for people who, who really are affected by the loss of their pet, say, or by a breakup, it can be extreme. And for anyone who's been through the pain of romantic heartbreak, for example, they might remember that it was the most painful, centralizing, dominant uh, experience they ever went through. 
Actually, you know, you said grieving and, and heartbreak share all the same physiological hallmarks. Could you talk a little bit about how emotional pain and physical pain are related? So, yes, one of the things that I think is really interesting um, is that when we look at what happens in the brain when our heart is broken, then you see something really interesting. What they did in this experiment, I'll just uh, describe the experiment a bit because I think it's an interesting one. They had people who had been through a recent heartbreak um, bring uh, pictures of the person who broke their heart um, and they had them lie in a functional MRI machine and stuck the picture to the top of the tube and had them relive the breakup um, while they were looking at what happened in their brain. And then what they did is they had a second condition in which they gave the people a break, put them back in the tube. And this time they wanted to compare what their brain looked like when they were experiencing physical pain. So they placed heat transducers on their forearms with settings from zero to 10, when zero was meh, and 10 was really intolerable pain. The duration was seven seconds. Um, and they uh, racked, you know, they, they, they built it up. Um, and it's roughly when the pain hit eight on that scale of one to 10, when 10 was intolerable pain, for only seven seconds, mind you, um, which is where they started to see similar uh, responses in the brain as they did to the heartbreak condition. And, and what was interesting there is that this is physical pain that is nearly intolerable for seven seconds. When we are heartbroken, we are experiencing that pain for way longer than seven seconds. We are experiencing it for hours, for weeks, months sometimes, you know, not continually, but with bursts and with continued durations of really sharp pain for a very long time. And so this is super serious. If somebody was in physical pain um, that was eight on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being intolerable, and they were living like that for weeks on end, we would have real sympathy for them. We wouldn't expect them to function at their jobs or in school, or we would understand that, wow, 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 they're going through something. Um, we don't afford that same courtesy to people who are heartbroken because we don't perceive it in the same terms. And that experiment really did a lot to kind of make concrete um, really how painful heartbreak is and how extended it can be and how impactful it can be. Why, why don't we extend the same kind of understanding to heartbreak as we would to other kinds of pain. Where do you think that comes from? Well, we don't extend the same understanding to emotions in general um, as we do to um, uh, physical health, for example. One, one of the things I speak about is emotional health and how it tends to be very neglected and marginalized. And we all wake up in the morning and we brush our teeth and we floss and we spend more time taking care of our teeth than we do our emotions, really. Um, we don't have any practices of emotional hygiene or ways in which we prioritize how we're feeling and address it rather than just note it. Um, and so there's a general way in which both psychology, but especially emotions, um, are really uh, marginalized in, in a lot of people's minds. I, I have had people sit in a session, one person, you know, I, I speak about this and talk sometimes, sat in a session and said to me literally, I don't believe in feelings. Oh. Now... <laughs> Yes. And now he was saying it while his wife was sitting next to him in a couples therapy session, dabbing at her eyes with a handkerchief. So she's in distress and crying and he's announcing, I don't believe in feelings, you know, like, like it were like feelings were a unicorn or, or, or an alien, something that we really need verified sightings of or something. It was just, 
And, and that person wasn't cruel. He, they just kind of felt like, well, feelings shouldn't matter. We should be willing to override them. And no, um, A, we should not be uh, able to override them. Feelings are extraordinarily informative. They are the basis for most of our decisions and for a lot um, of what we do in life. They're, they're actually super important um, for our basic functioning. Um, people who don't have feelings, there are issues with their functioning. It's, it's literally not a thing we can do without. But certainly to recognize that all kinds of situations in life can cause emotional pain and distress that is true suffering is a real basic that even to that level, many people don't even accept that basic premise. And that's, that's how far behind we are in terms of our sophistication emotionally. What do you, what do you find people spend the most time on when they've had their heart broken that they really should drop that's really not serving them at all? So that can vary for different people. But for most people, there is there are these things they get stuck on. And for anyone who's either experienced it or experienced a friend going through it, you you have done or you have heard the person say to you for the 15th time, I just can't believe that they did so and so and so. I just can't, you know, believe that they said that. But just a week before the breakup, they were, they sent me this card. Can you believe they sent me this card a week before the breakup? And you're like, yeah, I believed it the first 20 times you told me, but I believe it still. Um, and, and you can see the person being a little bit stuck on it because they're, they're not getting past that point. They're not, it's not making sense to them, even though they get it, you know, and, and I'll just give this as an example. And, and because this is something that comes up all the time in a breakup, but just the week before they said, I love you just the week before we were on vacation and everything seemed fine and they don't understand. And therefore they think, and this is what traps people. Um, therefore something crucial happened in that week that caused the breakup. Mm. So let's go back with a fine tooth comb on every possible memory I have of that week on every recollection of that period since the last time I remember things were good and figure out what I did wrong or what was that um, straw that, uh, you know, that, 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 that caused the breakup. And that is folly. That's not useful for this following reason. That is not why breakups happen. Um, people drift emotionally and they get to a, whether that drift happens quickly um, or slowly over time, but they get to a point where they are considering breaking up and very, very few of them will tell you. They won't tell you. People don't, whether it's a divorce or a regular breakup, they won't tell you that. They will, you know, nurse and figure it out until they reach a decision. And so a week before the breakup, they hadn't decided yet. They were pretty sure they were going to do it. They didn't quite know when. They were waiting for this. They were tr trying to figure out that. But they knew they were going to do it. And while they knew it but weren't ready, they were taking it. And I don't mean that in a Machiavellian, manipulative way. They were just, well, let's not have a miserable life in the meantime. And oftentimes, it's not that they hate you. It's just that they don't love you anymore. And so they, they, they can fake it easily because they do like you. They do enjoy you. It's just not there anymore for them. So for them, it's just like, yes, and then I decided I'm, going, I'm just going to do it now. So nothing happened in that period between the vacation and the breakup or the I love you and the breakup or the lovely card and the breakup. Nothing happened. And so going on that search is useless. It's just, it's, it's just conspiracy theory making because there's, there's nothing to be found there. 
um, because and it, they just told you when they were ready to tell you. People almost get addicted to the story about what might have happened. They get addicted to being detectives. Could you actually talk a little bit about how addiction and heartbreak are, are related? Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things about heartbreak that most people are not aware of and I thought was very important to to discuss in my book and to give a lot of examples of how this happens, um, is that when we look at what happens in our brain when we are heartbroken, we see very similar activity than we see when um, opioid addicts are withdrawing from heroin, literally, or cocaine, say, um, um, because the reward centers in our brain are going crazy. Now, if you think about a heroin addict who's looking for a fix, it wouldn't surprise you that they're looking for a fix now. There is nothing else they are doing right now because they need a fix. So that's the only thing they're doing. They are acting out of character, doing desperate and terrible things to get that fix. They are stealing to get money. They are prostituting themselves. They are, you know, uh, they're, they're not showing up at work. They are neglecting their children. They're doing terrible things, and we understand that. Why? Because the craving for heroin, when you're withdrawing, is so severe. That's all you can think about. Now, it's extraordinarily similar what happens in the brain with heartbreak. And so we are craving the other person. We are craving a fix. But we don't think of ourselves as addicts. And so an addict, when they're doing that, they know what's going on. They're not delusional. They understand, yeah, I'm, I need a fix. I'll do anything. Um, but when we're heartbroken, we give ourselves all kinds of excuses uh, to, oh, let me, oh, you know what they had? They said their sister's wedding was this weekend. Let me just go and see if they went. Oh, and now I'm here. Let me just look at all their other pictures. In other words, we're getting our fix of them, but we're not saying that to ourselves. We're just indulging this, this compelling, compelling instinct. We really act um, so out of character. Like some people say, I feel like I'm going crazy. And like, again, if you were a heroin addict, you wouldn't feel like you're going crazy. You'd be super clear. No, I'm craving the substance that I really need. It's the same thing. So we have to understand we're not going crazy. This is our brain's reward centers misfiring and going, where's that thing that was making me happy and without which I feel I can't live, you know? Uh, and, and that's what that's about. I'd like to talk about techniques, actually, for, for making this better. But it struck me as you were just speaking that one of the techniques that people tend to use is, I think we call them serial monogamists, is that when they lose one relationship, they just bounce to another. Um, is that ever a good idea or ever a good technique? So, look, people, um, even the when you said it now, serial monogamists, you actually didn't have a, a subtext of criticism in your tone, but many people do. Um, because it sounds, well, they're just not dealing with their feelings, they're just jumping into another relationship. Um, and I have a very specific way of looking at that. Um, they just got broken up with, so they're heartbroken. If jumping into another relationship um, helps them feel less pain, Yes, go at it. In other words, they were broken up with. They're not getting back with the other person, so they're not. there's no reason for them to wait around. And just to wait around in pain to, quote-unquote, process their feelings, if they have the alternative of jumping into another relationship, then go ahead, jump into another relationship. You know, most people uh, will be in a situation in which they can't quite fake it in a new relationship, uh, emotionally and otherwise, because, you know, their, part, their new partner will be looking at them and saying, why are you crying when we're having sex? And really the answer is because I'm thinking about my ex, I'm not really emotionally available and able to be in this new relationship, I'm just trying. And so you can't really get away with that if you're not built, if, if you don't have the, 
the uh, the the emotional ability to do that. Um, and for those who do, you know, go ahead. And some will say, well, that's not fair to the new person. And it might not be, but um, I know plenty of situations in which it actually worked out over the long term with a new person. So it's not that that's, again, if somebody can do that emotionally, I think they should feel that they can go ahead and do it. And really the same is true of uh, pets. That is actually not at all what I was expecting you to to answer. <laughs> I thought you were going to say should never jump into a new relationship, but I'm, it's it's interesting to me to hear you say if that works for you, then then you should do it. Yes, um, let the hate mail begin. But but look, but seriously, I mean, I mean <laughs> I, it's fine that people disagree with that, and I'm again making being very clear that for those who can, by all means, and then those who can't can't usually fake it for long enough to that. For that to have an impact you know and but if you're yeah. worried about the person themselves oh you're not ready what are you doing if they're not ready they won't be able to if they are able to they are ready by definition so the proof mm. is in the pudding yeah that's that is totally fair um I, i'm thinking about the the anecdote or the the passage in how to fix a broken heart where you talk about a man named ben who had a beloved dog that exited his life um and and that was just really, really gutting for him. Um, when, when, when you write a book like um, about heartbreak and you've been a therapist in private practice for 20-something years, you have a lot of cases from which to choose. I mean, you, you've worked with so many of these cases. Who do you include? Like, whose story do you want to tell? Who has an interesting story to tell? And in this story, the fact that this guy lost his dog was as absolutely as uh, regular, um, as uh, standard, as undramatic. I mean, it was dramatic because the guy lost his dog, but it was, it, it was not unusual for losing an animal. What, why I chose that story is because that same person had lost both his parents in the same year, some years before. And I had a direct comparison and working with him through those two instances in his life of how he responded to the loss of both his parents versus how he responded to the loss of his dog. And why I chose that case was because his reaction and the loss of the dog hit him so much harder, was so much harder for him than the loss of his parents. And initially people would say to me, well, that's just... He's a terrible person then, <laughs> if, if that's the case. And actually, he wasn't a terrible person. He, he, he cared for his parents, but you know, his parents lived in a different state. He would see them maybe once a month. He would go down to visit. He would speak to them on the phone once a week. They were not a part of his daily life. They were not you know, a part of his daily routine. Um, his dog was. His dog was, he worked from home. His dog was with him literally 24 Seven, his dog had been with him for many years through the loss of his parents, had supported him through the loss of his parents, as animals do, um, unbidden, they're extremely supportive, and helped him with his loneliness after his divorce. In other words, the dog um, was not just a part of his daily life, but it was an incredible, important component in his emotional support system, in his social support system. And so... It was an interesting comparison to see, okay, here's somebody who loses both his parents, which were truly his only family. He was his, an only child. Um, and yet it was the loss of the dog that absolutely devastated him. So it really, it sounds like it really comes down to a matter of 
regularity of that presence in your life, because then it, you sort of have to re-envision a whole identity away from that, that beloved person or object. That is absolutely true. Um, that is a very key component. I think that's true about loss in general. Loss affects us in all kinds of ways, but it is going to be compounded um, the more it, uh, the, 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 the person, the animal, whatever it is that we lost was a part of our daily life because then it's, its impact and its, and its ripple effects are going to be just much, much uh, broader than um, if it were intermittent. And so, yes, that, that really does compound things. And you also mentioned, uh, you know, the term identity. And that's a very important aspect in grieving in general as well, because, um, you know, we, we define ourselves, for example, uh, often by our couplehood. Like I said, even the pronouns we use, oh, how was your vacation? Our vacation was great. We went to this and this place. We loved it. We really enjoyed this restaurant. We hated that movie. Um, in other words, we, how we speak about our experience in couplehood literally is defined by different pronouns that are not just arbitrary. They actually define our sense of self. We see ourselves in couplehood as part of a unit, as part of a mini tribe, as it were. And then suddenly we are no longer part of a mini tribe anymore. We are isolated. We are alone. Um, and we have our, maybe our larger group affiliations and tribes, but our core tribe, that mini tribe, uh, is no longer. And so it's a very fundamental loss to our sense of who we are and how we function in the world and how we see ourselves in the world. When, when we break up a relationship, or let's say if our dog dies, then there are very fundamental aspects of our lives that just got changed. There are very daily, uh, tangible things um, that are going to be different. If it's a breakup, for example, well, we, our weekends were always about, well, what will we do together? Uh, we're never alone on weekends. We were always with our partner. We didn't have to worry about plans or this or that. We, you know, we could watch TV. We could take a walk. We could do whatever. Suddenly, it's no longer we. It's I. And, and, I'll, and I don't know what I'm going to do on my weekend. And I'm not sure... You know, uh, I'm coming home to an empty apartment um, at night, and I don't know what I'm going to be doing with my holidays. And I used to refer to myself as a we, and now I'm an I. And all the other couples we used to hang out with because that was a couple's thing, I'm now not fitting in with anymore because I'm not a couple. And I lost all that socializing opportunity or the friends that went with my uh, other significant other rather than staying with me. So, there, so there, there, there's so many tangible, real, real changes that occur in our lives, um, it, it really feels like we're living a different life and it's a new chapter. Yeah. If you were to design a, heart, a heartbreak ritual to help people suffering from, from a loss like this, what would it look like? Ah, yet another wonderful question. <laughs> um, and I say that, of course, to stall for time. As I think <laughs> Here I so, was thinking um, <laughs> that I was actually good at this. Thanks, Guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's a sign you've got to look because, yeah, it's a new question. And I like, I like to think about the answer for that. Um, look, so first of all, it would not involve alcohol mm. um, or uh, ice cream, which it probably does for most people. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say to most people, what's your go-to uh, you know, uh, soothing mechanism, they go, tequila. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, 
but but the, the the ritual I would probably um, compose uh, would have several parts to it because there are several stages of grief, and I don't mean the five stages because those are not necessarily in favor these days. But but there are several stages. You know, there's a stage of this kind of disbelief of you know just coming to terms with the reality, and so part of the ritual would be one in which we are wrapping our heads more and more around this new reality. So I would have the social support there and the person's ability to talk through what happened with their friends because the more they can talk it through, at least at the beginning, the more they can begin to wrap their heads around it. I would involve a purging section Mm. um, to this uh, ritual because I believe that um, for most people, and not, not for all, but for most people, it's useful to... In order to get over someone, you have to have them out of your uh, sight, as it were. So um, you would not need reminders about them um, all around because you kind of have that anyway in your head. And so the idea is try and think about them less, right? Because the goal of recovery from heartbreak, if you think about it, is to think about the person or the animal or the loss less and less and to have less pain associated with those thoughts when you have them all the time that would be the goal so in order to do that we need to diminish their presence in our mind and therefore um let's um let's not be friends on social media at the moment people say but what if you want to be friends later then reconnect later i think it's fair if somebody broke up with you to say i'm going to um uh, you know not be in touch on social media and block you for a, a while temporarily and i hope it's okay with you if i reconnect uh, a little bit later, I just need to do this for right now. And for most people, it's like, sure, that's fine. Um, for, for, for many of us, this idea of, no, 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 we can be friends when, no, we can't. We're trying to get over them. You cannot be friends, um, is, is, is an excuse to try and stay in touch. And But when you're staying in touch, you're not just, oh, yeah, we're friends on Facebook. You're looking at their feed. You're looking at their Instagram pictures. You're looking at their YouTube postings. You're really stalking them to, in a way, keep them in your life and delay that feeling of they're no longer in your life, but they're no longer in your life. And so the sooner you kind of adapt to that reality, um, the better. And it's, it's similar with a pet. I mean, you might want to keep, it will feel very disloyal the day a dog dies to go and remove their feeding dish or to go and take the cat's litter box um, out. Um, but um, if that feels disloyal the first day, do it the second. Because the reality is the dog isn't there. You don't need to memorialize them with their bowl and their litter because then when is the right time to remove it? You'll feel guilty even whenever you do it, right? So, so in those rituals, there would be a, there would be a support, uh, there would be a, a, a purging um, uh, component, and there would have to be a, uh, a, an identity component of really uh, thoughtfully redefining how we see ourselves in this new chapter, how we want to see ourselves in this new chapter, what are the opportunities we can find in this loss to, um, you know, pursue things that we weren't able to. So we had to compromise in our relationship because our, our partner wasn't into golf, so we didn't golf, and or our partner wasn't into cooking, so we never really cooked. And so, but now, oh, they didn't like that friend or that relative, so now we can see that friend, we can see that relative, we can do the thing we wanted, we can get back to aspects of ourselves that we felt defining for us before the breakup or before the relationship rather and we can connect to those again and the same with the loss of a pet it might very much highlight voids in our life but then it would be useful for us to 
pay attention and then to find ways to fill those mm-hmm. voids. That's great. So we have first social support essentially is the, is the bedrock ingredient here. People need to have the social support in order to get through this reality check component of this is over now. This is a thing that genuinely happened and I have to reckon with it. And then you have purging, which is get rid of all the mementos, essentially, whether they're digital or physical. Um, and then you have then you have identity, reshaping identity. Um, so that's three steps. And those are what it would what I guess good heartbreak hygiene would look like. Right. I guess I, I, I'd just like to wrap up with with two things. One is um if you could if you could leave people with an idea about about heartbreak and about these about I guess making a, about emotional pain. What would what do you wish people understood better about emotional pain and heartbreak or that they did differently? I guess my wish is that people really understood that emotional pain should be considered in the same way we do physical pain. We have a lot of empathy for people who have physical pain. Uh, It's a natural response. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry you're hurting. Um, Our empathy with emotional pain is limited. That friend who's heartbroken, we will reach a point before they are recovered that we are kind of over that we are losing our empathy and starting to feel resentful that they still need to lean on us so heavily. Why aren't they moving forward? And indeed, people do get stuck. And this is part of why I wrote the book, to help people not get stuck. But we do need to understand that um, we can't, our internal uh, subjective idea of when somebody should be over something is our internal subjective idea and not their reality. So we should have empathy um, for it. And, and when we are the heartbroken people, we have to remember that, number one, that your emotions are not silly, they are not um, foolish, they are not embarrassing, they are extraordinarily real. Everyone in your situation, anyone in your situation, would feel a degree of what you're feeling, um, whether it's your degree or one notch below or one notch above, it's going to be in that range, everyone. And so you are not an anomaly and there's nothing wrong with you for having the response that you're having. People can be heartbroken, and I talk about this in the book, I bring examples of this in the book, after a single date. There's no minimum amount of time, and people can come out of a two-year relationship kind of like, eh, all right. So it's very individual, it depends on context, it depends on all kinds of things, but be self-compassionate, don't judge yourself, and understand that there are things you need to know to recover uh, more quickly, and understand that if it's your friend, there are things they need to know in order to recover more quickly. And so at least have that dialogue with them, that it's not just about time and waiting it out. It's about taking steps. Great. Thank you. Um, so then the last thing that I wanted to ask you is about books. What have you read lately that that you've really enjoyed? It can be related to your field or it can be anything else that you think is, is illuminating and interesting. So just related to my field, there's a uh, colleague I have who writes books that I really like because they're very... Uh, tangible, practical, action-oriented um, books. Her latest book is called The Healthy Mind Toolkit. Her name is Alice Boyes, B-O-Y-E-S. Her latest book is called The Healthy Mind Toolkit, and she also had the first, first book called The Anxiety Toolkit. And it's very, very practical. It has a lot of self-assessments and very specific tools. I, I believe that psychology needs to be a practical science for people. So go say to people, you know, like, oh, you need to get there is great, but telling people how to get there is greater. And she does a good job of breaking that down. 
Um, I uh, also recommend, I think, uh, Martin Seligman's book, Flourish, which I think does a good job of, uh, of highlighting emotional health, which is, uh, I guess, the, the thing that I'm uh, most interested in. And just to throw out a general book that everybody's read already, but I'm just throwing it out because I did enjoy it so much, and that is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari about the um, uh, a summary of uh, human existence and human history. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a massive best-selling book. Most people have heard of it and read it, but um, it, it's really a, a, an enjoyable uh, book to read. Great. Yeah, that, that is a great one. I've never heard of the, of the first one you mentioned, the Healthy Mind Toolkit. I'll look into that. Um, yeah, the Anxiety Toolkit and the Healthy Mind uh, Toolkit by Alice Boys. Great. Guy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's been, it's been really wonderful to, to learn from you, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Do you want to say welcome to the bookend? Should I say welcome to the bookend? Welcome to the bookend. Here we are. <laughs> are we recording? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to the bookend. You forgot to say where we end with books. Oh, where we end with books. Yeah. Where yes. do we end with books? In the bookend. This is okay. the end, and we're ending with books, because <laughs> yeah. there's no better ending than with books. It's the happiest of all endings. Yes. So we just heard from Guy Winch, we who did. gave us some ideas as to how to deal with a broken heart. Um, Terrence, is there anything in there that you think that you'll be using in the future or or talking about to friends who are going through heartbreaks? You know, I think it's just validating to hear someone say that your emotional life is as real as your physical life. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just giving advice to friends during heartbreak or taking care of yourself during heartbreak, I think honoring whatever you're experiencing and validating it is that's the key takeaway for me. Mm -hmm. And how easily it is to forget that because I think we want to hide our pain and the kind of messy feelings. Uh, but that's kind of really where, where all the good stuff is. Yeah, totally agreed. I, I got to kind of wondering about this. And I, I I wonder how much of this has to do with the fact that we're really visual creatures who have five senses, but we really prize visuals mm -hmm. and what we can, can you know see with the naked eye as opposed to what we would have to sort of experience with other senses and intuition. Um, we talked with Cheryl Strade really early on this season about how important intuition is and how trusting what you feel actually is. And I think dealing with a heartache, you have to trust how you feel there, too. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with with I mean, sometimes you can see physical symptoms of heartache. Somebody will look literally look down at the floor, sometimes have the slumped shoulders. Maybe they've been crying, but you can't necessarily tell what that's about. So you have to you have to sort of observe in yourself and in others the fact that there's so much going on below the surface all the time and to honor the fact that that is true. Um, and I also love that Guy Winch gave us the opportunity to to agree upon that. Yeah, definitely. Mm. My pick for the book in this time is a book that both Terrence and I have read, actually, and we're super yes. excited about. Yes. It is called A General Theory of Love, and it was written by Thomas Lewis, Fari Amina, and Richard Lannan. Um, it, they're all psychiatry professors at UC San Francisco, and it deals with human emotions and biological psychiatry. This book is incredible. It's it is about, incredible. Yeah. 
it's it's it deals with love and human connection um, from a scientific standpoint and from lots of fonts of the arts. So you've got dance in there. You have um, I don't know all kinds of visual art, poetry, writing. It really just takes you through the neuroscience and the cultural artifacts of love and human connection, which is amazing. You love this book too, yeah. I loved it, and it was my introduction to attachment theory. Mm, mm-hmm. So once I read this, I was kind of on an attachment theory drag. Same thing happened to jag, me. <laughs> which basically is, if for those of you who don't know attachment theory, it's just your, like, the attachment to your parents, like whether you're secure, insecure. Or disordered or, or disorganized. Disorganized. Yeah. And it's just a kind of a fundamental bond that starts your life, and it plays into how you relate to other people. Yeah, it kind of sets that mold. It was also my first introduction to attachment theory, but it was the first brush for me with this really crazy idea that our limbic systems, so that thing that makes us all our emotional selves, are not at all self-contained, and that they're impacted and revised by the people around us all the time, the people you work with, the people who live with you, your roommates, your family, we literally make one another. And it's it's just such a miracle. And we can only be as emotionally healthy as the people around us are to us, which is part of why I hired Terrence. <laughs> yeah, and which fits into Guy Winch's work because he's really showing when you lose that kind of companion, like how it fundamentally changes your day-to-day experience and your life. Right. It's it's you're missing a part of your identity almost or yeah. one of the, the things that shapes it. It's like having a wall knocked out of your house. Absolutely. Do you have a house now or do you have a lean-to? <laughs> it's a great book. I highly recommend that book. Yeah. If you love Oliver Sacks or Stephen Pinker, this this one will be for you. Yes. Okay, so that's my book. Terrence, you have some books for us? I do. Similar to that one in the sense that this author is pulling from a lot of different places, film, literature, psychology. It's on the way to the wedding, which if you do a search, you may come up with a romance novel. It's not that one. (laughs) The subtitle, wait for it, is Transforming the Love Relationship, and it's by Linda Leonard. She's a Jungian analyst, Mm -hmm. and she really is looking at... um, kind of what, like the desire to having meaningful connection to another person and what happens when that can go awry and kind of how to connect with yourself first before you have a union with somebody else. There's one chapter where she uses Paris, Texas by Vim Vendors Mm. as this kind of through line. It's not a light read, Mm. but it's really, really good. Wow, cool. I have not read this one, but now I really want to. I've also, I saw Paris, Texas when I was an undergrad, actually. It was part of my classics and film course and it was really wonderful great movie yeah my, I have another one just this was by chance the day after i moved to berlin i was wandering the streets went into a bookstore randomly picked up this book in love what is it alfred hayes terence is holding up a slim volume with a, a black and white photo of a woman um on the cover yeah okay. it's very slim i know most of the recommendations are nonfiction. this is fiction but i'm going to make a case William Maxwell, the fiction editor of The New Yorker, said that literature is psychology in action. Mm. And I sometimes think that literature gives us like an experiential version of what a nonfiction can, book can give. Mm. So Guy Winch is talking about, you know, heartbreak um, and experiments. And this book is just a really like the inside of someone's mind as they're going through a heartbreak. Wow. He only wrote like this is the most... This is the, really the only book that he's known for, but he was a pretty 
recognized film script writer. Oh. I'd never heard of him before. Randomly picked up the book. But it really, when I thought of this episode, I really thought, hmm, that book did such a good job of showing the kind of almost like craziness that one can go through in the midst of like losing somebody. Yeah, that addiction cycle that yeah. Guy Lynch talks about, yeah. how it's, it's an actual literal chemical addiction. Yeah. And wow, he, cool. He nails it in that one. So you just found this in a bookshop. Was it just in your neighborhood? You just Yeah, it was like a pop, it's a pop-up book. I mean, the great thing about Berlin is there seemed to be books everywhere. Yeah. And the cosmic joke was that I shipped all these books here. paid <laughs> <laughs> buku bucks to, to send them here. And this one cost me half a euro. <laughs> <laughs> Did your books ever come? Some of them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Those are cool recommendations. I don't yeah. I don't know those two. Great. See, this is what Terrence does for our lives. Awesome. All right. So this episode of Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Terrence Mickey, Odie Constantino, Nat Darishkina, Ben Jackson, and Ben Schumann-Stoller, who has recently perfected homemade kimchi that is, quote, fresh, easy, brighter than a lot of other kimchi. He'll send you the recipe if you email him. And a big thank you to that team and everybody at Blinkist who makes this podcast happen. It's a really a labor of love, and everyone's love is appreciated. Absolutely. Deeply. Deeply, deeply. Cool. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the podcatchers you know and love. We would love to hear what you thought of season four and what you've learned, how you like the guests, who else you'd like to hear on Simplify. Let us know what you think. We care, and we use your feedback to make changes. So... Email us at podcast at Blinkist.com or on Twitter. I'm at Caitlin Schiller. Terrence is, I don't know if Terrence wants to share. Um, What is it? At Terrence underscore Mickey. Okay, cool. Um, And of course, last thing I'll say, Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist. Obviously, we've talked about it a million times today. But Terrence and Ben and all of us, we all work there. Um, And it's a personal development tool that takes insights from the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into focused little capsules of knowledge that are available in audio or text takes just about 15 minutes to listen to those. So yeah, Terrence, do you want to tell people about the voucher? Yes. So if you want to try it, we made a voucher code for this episode. You can get 14 days free if you go to Blinkist.com slash friends and type in the voucher code HEART. Cool. Great. All right. So see you guys next week in the last episode of the season. Ben will be back for that one. All right. Then this is Caitlin checking out. Terrence checking out. Bye. See ya.